0: Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. Today's story mixes folklore with true stories of death and murder. My primary source for this episode comes from Colin A. Thompson's 1984 book, Swift Runner. He was a professor at University of Lethbridge, but because it was the 80s, there's heavy use of the word Indian, so I reworked a lot of the text. Additional sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Today's Missing Indigenous Woman was featured on an episode of Crime Junkie, so you can check out that episode for even more information. Born on November 27, 1970, Susan Robin Bender lived with her mother Patricia Chupko in Modesto, California. The two shared a slightly turbulent relationship, with constant arguments ending in Susan running away from home for brief periods twice. Nonetheless, things had been restored to normal, and on April 25, 1986, the 15-year-old teenager left home to visit some friends in Carmel for a few days. Thus, she went to the Greyhound station in Modesto to board a bus. While waiting for the bus, Susan seemingly ran into her friend, who later saw her making a payphone call before willingly getting into an olive green van that pulled up. Susan called her mother Patricia that night, but instead of being with the friend she had claimed to visit, the latter heard from her former employer Roger's voice in the background. Given Pat's previous conflicts with him, she feared he may have harmed her daughter and frantically called the friend Susan was supposed to visit. Roger was an influential man in Modesto, but apparently he had a few pending legal allegations against him. As the investigation commenced, the police suspected foul play and approached Roger. Shockingly, Susan's diary, phone book, and a few clothes were retrieved from his house. While this was significant evidence, it wasn't enough to incriminate Roger in the teenager's disappearance, as the police still doubted if she was dead or alive. While the search for Susan continued, Pat kept believing that Roger was somehow connected to her daughter's disappearance. However, she and the police soon found another possibility that made them fear that Susan had been killed. Unfortunately, Susan Robin Bender is still missing more than 36 years after she disappeared from the Modesto Greyhound Depot in 1986. Susan has black hair and brown eyes and is 5'5". She also has freckles and pierced ears. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a light blue skirt with multicolored dots, a light-colored blouse, a white vest, and a gold bracelet. If you have any information about Susan's disappearance, please call the Modesto Police Department at 209-572-9551. Ruth Lance describes a wendigo as a mystic, cannibalistic skeleton of evil power, but also a pathological state of manic depression, paranoia, and possible cannibalism. This creature has many permutations, but originates from the Algonquian tribe. The Algonquians are some of the most extensive and numerous of the indigenous groups in North America, and they once lived all along the Atlantic coast in the Great Lakes region. However, Wendigo-like creatures are also found in legends of other indigenous tribes, including the Iroquois. Roughly translated, the word Wendigo means the evil spirit that devours mankind. Another translation, said to be made by a German explorer around 1860, equates the word Wendigo with cannibal. In some versions, the Wendigo is a singular creature whose spirit can possess vulnerable individuals. In others, any person that resorts to cannibalism, whether intentionally or out of survival, turns into a Wendigo. As an anthropomorphic cryptid, the Wendigo is a blood-curdling hiss and a thunder-like roar that reverberates for miles. Its two protruding eyes roll in sockets of blood and its large, lipless mouth houses sharp, jagged teeth. The Wendigo uses its claws and prodigious strength to disembowel its human victims, first using his terrible scream to paralyze them. Its feet are a yard long with pointed heels and one large toe that allow it to quickly navigate through trees and water. Impervious to cold, it retreats to the frozen, far north when summer's warmth invades the forest. Best remembered characteristics of the wendigo are its heart of ice and its insatiable hunger for human flesh. The wendigo can take possession of a person's mind, body, and soul. Their hearts eventually turn to ice these human wendigos become almost as terrible as the monster itself. Many indigenous tribes learn to accept the existence of the wendigo. Some legends, such as those told to the young Canadian Cree Swift Runner, suggest that a sorcerer created the first wendigo from the body of a human. The abhorrent creature could then do the evil work of the sorcerer. The human grew to a great size and his skin became as hard as stone. Other indigenous tribes contend that a Wendigo represents unfortunate starvation victims who, by living in the monster's body, search for revenge. Some even say that the Wendigo was once a lost hunter. During a brutally cold winter, this man's intense hunger drove him to cannibalism. After feasting on another human's flesh, he transformed into a crazed man-beast, roaming the forest in search of more people to eat. Basil Johnston, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar from Ontario, Canada, wrote the following about the Wendigo. Quote, the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out over its skin, its complexion the ash-grey of death, and its eyes pushed back deep in the sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, Unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Wendigo stories involve acts of cannibalism. One tale is that of a man who told two young boys that he planned to kill and eat their father. The boys quickly ran to their mother with the awful news. She hurriedly organized her relatives into a rescue group, but it was too late. They found the murdered father being eaten by the Wendigo a group set snares and traps and caught the beast they hacked him into small pieces with axes and burned his remains to ashes another story involved two adult sisters one of whom had a husband and two children as she starved she became a human Wendigo she killed and ate her husband and children but spared her younger sister Later, the younger sister was forced to say to a passing witness that she had been responsible for the cannibal feast. However, the witness later saw the older sister with a collection of human hands and therefore knew that she was actually the guilty party. Wendigo psychosis is characterized by an undeniable, intense compulsion to eat human flesh. In fact, some experts equate the psychosis to protein deficiency. The possessed individual can't control their delusions and cannibalistic impulses. Someone who develops this craving or is in the process of doing so is called a Wendigo. When an individual develops the Wendigo psychosis or becomes a Wendigo, they first suffer from deep melancholy and paranoia, often followed by a strong distaste for ordinary food, and later by an obsessive desire and need for human flesh that leads, inexorably, to homicidal cannibalism. Other symptoms include vomiting, dizziness, and chronic nausea, In the preliminary stage the afflicted person falls into a stupor it's said that at this stage the psychosis can be helped but once the afflicted commits acts of violence to human victims little can be done to satiate their appetite for some the only cure for wendigo psychosis is death the only way to annihilate the evil spirit is to cremate the body there are at least six dozen known examples of wendigo related crimes or near crimes in canadian history A female Cree of Big Bear's camps near Frog Lake in 1885 insisted that unless she was put to death, she would kill and devour several children of the camp. Accordingly, she was blindfolded and carried from her lodge. Her head was struck by a club and shot with a pistol. She was then decapitated. Her head was burned to ashes and her body was thrown down a well. Explorer Alexander Henry's diary of 1760 to 1776 told of another case of Wendigo psychosis. A young indigenous male near Oak Bay on Lake Superior's North Shore was thought to be a cannibal. When his camp was discovered, he was found to have a human hand and a skull in his possession. Intestines were found hanging from a tree. The 15-year-old boy confessed that his uncle felt the spirit of the wendigo upon him. He asked his wife to kill him, but she refused. For unexplained reasons, the boy and his cousin decided to kill his uncle, along with three of his other children. Later, he killed and ate his cousin. Upon this confession, his skull was crushed from behind, and death was instantaneous. Regardless of the belief in the Wendigo, it has historical significance for many indigenous communities. The legend of the Wendigo has long been associated with real-life problems like insatiable greed, selfishness, and violence. It's also linked to the many cultural taboos against these negative actions and behaviors. The word Wendigo can also function as a symbol for gluttony in the image of excess. As Basil Johnston has written, the idea of turning Wendigo is a very real possibility when the word refers to self-destruction, rather than literally becoming a monster in the forest. Tales of the Wendigo, in part, illustrated indigenous peoples' response to the horrific violence unleashed on them by white settlers. In fact, many anthropologists believe that the concept of a Wendigo only developed after indigenous people had contact with the Europeans. During the winter of 1819 to 1820, while indigenous land was being colonized, measles had wiped out one third of the gross venter and Blackfoot tribes. Diphtheria had brought strangled death to others. Near the 1840s, the dreaded smallpox arrived with a special vengeance. As many as 50% of Alberta's indigenous population succumbed to illness. Swift Runner was born around the time of the smallpox outbreak. When he was a young man, he anticipated his parents would arrange a marriage for him, as is customary in Cree tradition. When he saw a girl at his camp, he decided to forge a path of his own. Whenever she fetched water, he followed her. He did this for a while before she finally talked to him, but she liked his good humor and quiet power. After the match was approved by her father and the couple married, Swift Runner worked hard to provide for his wife and in-laws. He and his wife led a peaceful life for many years, and eventually had five children together. Swiftrunner taught his children that the Cree weren't merely a people, but a tribe of blood brothers living in an increasingly difficult world. The children were taught to be justly proud of their heritage, belief, and traditions. Swiftrunner spent his days trading with white men and hunting for food his wife spent her days preparing food and helping to dismantle and reestablish the campsites as the band picked up their belongings and moved to follow the buffalo. The buffalo were becoming increasingly scarce, and the moves were becoming more frequent. Swift Runner had become the head man, or Okima, of a small group of wandering Crees. He gained a good reputation as a hunter. The Hudson's Bay Company found him to be a reliable trader, and in 1875 recommended him to the Northwest Mounted Police, who hired him as a guide. But, as the years went by, more and more often, Swift Runner returned to camp empty-handed. His life had grown harsh and predictable, and his hold on it was insecure. His pride suffered greatly when he saw his family hungry, run down to the rib-hungry. He lacked the necessary appetite for life, and began to take refuge in the whiskey provided by the white men. Under its influence, he would lapse into occasional bursts of uncontrollable anger. His personality began to change. A dark mood often crossed his face and his bursts of rage and bouts of insecurity became frequent. One day he would be cheerful and obliging. The next he would be temperamental, stubborn, and irritable. A sort of volatile dissonance often appeared. He wore his frustrations and cynicisms against the cold disappointment of living. The Hudson's Bay Company no longer trusted him. He became petulant, ungrateful, and obstinate towards the white men. He developed a quick and vicious temper. On at least one occasion, he sold stolen furs to pay for his liquor. Then, in 1878, when he was 39 years old, he stayed roaring drunk for three months. He entered Fort Saskatchewan on Christmas Eve and started a drunken quarrel with a white trader. Swift Runner tried to shoot him, but was stopped before he did any damage. He was arrested and placed in a cell where he sobered up. Afterwards, he was told to leave the area and there were no further charges. Swift Runner began having vivid dreams, hearing disembodied voices, and these delusions alienated him even further from his people. His rage continued to grow, due in part to the invasion of his people's territory. As the 19th century drew to a close, many white people believed that Swift Runner's old world was irrelevant, politically, socially, and economically, According to them, the loss of what they ignorantly referred to as Indianness wasn't important. After all, Western civilization was considered dynamic. Change was its strength. Indigenous culture, meanwhile, was seen to be static, although there is considerable evidence to the contrary. A colonial relationship emerged between the white police and lawmakers and the Cree, who were being inexorably dispossessed of their land and their culture. Many indigenous people identified those white people as the intruder, the spoilers, and the disturbers, but because of the diversity and differences among the tribes, it was difficult, if not impossible, to successfully challenge the advancing white culture. Illness from the white people had already wiped out hundreds of indigenous people during the turn of the 19th century, but as colonization increased, so did the spread of viruses and bacteria. In 1870, indigenous buffalo hunters fell ill in droves. Father Foreman, who reported that 300 fell to the outbreak, described the situation. Quote, Every time we changed camps, there were scenes of agony and despair. Frequently, there were not enough of us sufficiently well to harness the horses. How the sick suffered. When we came to a camping ground, we put up the tents and lit a fire in each one to warm the sick, to cook food and prepare medicine. These tents were only 10 feet in diameter, and yet I have seen 10 sick and dying Indians lying around the fire in one of them. I spent all my time tending to the sick in our 60 tents. I cannot describe their revolting stench. When the disease was in the desiccation stage, the victims were masses of putrefaction so that it was impossible to see them in the resemblance of a human being. All the priests could do was feed soup or give water for the final fever of the dying, the clergymen closed the eyes of the deceased and prepared the deformed bodies for quick burial. It wasn't until May of 1870 that the vaccine arrived at Fort Garry. By that time, the Cree and other indigenous tribes could sense that their strength was gone. No longer would the prairies and forests belong to them. Swift runners frustrations grew accordingly. During the summer of 1879, Commissioner Edgar Dudney visited Chief Crowfoot and found that there were 1,300 indigenous people in destitute condition, many on the verge of starvation, and the young men were so weak that they could hardly work. The elderly and widows had nothing, and many a pitiful tale was told of the misery that they endured. By November of 1879, there were about 3,000 indigenous people camped near Fort McLeod. Many of them were very short of food the buffalo were almost gone, the berry season had ended, and there were only wild turnips and other roots for food. Many had eaten nothing for days, and their children cried from hunger. The starvation was so rampant among the Blackfoot that many had died at Blackfoot Crossing. The winter of 1878 to 79 was a bitter one. Swift Runner and his family were camped approximately 80 miles north of Fort Saskatchewan. They were cold, miserable, and in trouble. Hunger was a constant companion. Swift Runner had killed his dogs, and his family had survived on their flesh while it lasted. His failures as a hunter and his inability to provide for his family produced an intolerable situation. In February of 1879, Swift Runner's mother-in-law and brother left the camp in search of food. Shortly afterward, his wife and all of the children except one son also left, planning to catch up with the others. For months now, Swift Runner had begun to experience symptoms of wendigo psychosis, dizziness, melancholy, and an ache in his muscles. As he watched his son sleep, an abominable thought entered his head, and like the wendigo, his heart became icy. He picked up his gun, pointed it at his son's head, and pulled the trigger. The bullet entered the top of his son's skull, but he continued to breathe. Swift Runner grabbed his knife and began to stab madly. Though his breath was labored, the son was still alive. Swift Runner found a tree branch and finished the job. He sliced his son's flesh and boiled it. He chewed on the hot meat and sucked the marrow from the bones. Swift Runner then left camp to stalk the rest of his family. When he found his wife, she told him that the rest of the family had died of starvation, but Swift Runner knew better. As she slept, he shot her in the neck. He then carried her body closer to the campfire so that he could butcher her in warmth. Swift Runner took his hatchet to find his young daughters. He hacked away at them in their sleep, then brought them to the fire to be cut up with his wife. He severed the heads of each body, broke the skulls, and took out their brains. His other son, whom he didn't kill, ate the fresh flesh with him. Consumed by an insatiable hunger, Swift Runner searched for his infant daughter. Once he found her, he hung her by her neck from a pole. He watched her twitch for a bit before pulling on her legs. He then followed the paths in the snow made by his mother-in-law and brother. He found them in a deep sleep, illuminated by the early morning's light. He slashed once at his mother-in-law before clubbing her face until bone was exposed. He turned to his brother and a single shot echoed into the air. He eviscerated his brother with utter indifference. The flesh of his brother and mother-in-law was cut into strips and hung on tree branches. After feasting upon the flesh of his family, Swift Runner and his young son wandered near a settlement at Egg Lake. They were eating together by their campfire when Swift Runner was overcome by psychosis once again. He stabbed the little boy in the chest, who collapsed onto the frozen ground. As he had done with everyone else in his family, Swift Runner butchered his son the same way he used to butcher deer in his youth. The campsite reeked of blood, damp rot, and putrefaction. After he arrived in St. Albert in March of 1879, rumors began to spread about his missing family. He assured everyone that his family died of starvation, but he himself appeared well-fed. Other indigenous people in the town were suspicious of him, and these suspicions made it all the way to the Northwest Mounted Police Superintendent in Fort Saskatchewan. Swift Runner was arrested on May 27, 1879. He remained type for some time until the authorities gave him his favorite liquor. He led them to a dense tangle of bushes, and the police got to work. They found skulls and various bones. A pair of child stockings was stuffed into the eye socket of one of the skulls. After bags of evidence were collected, Swift Runner confessed to his crimes in great detail. His trial took place three months later on August 16th. It was the first capital trial by jury in the West. The all-white jury of six men, four of whom spoke Cree, only took 20 minutes to agree on a guilty verdict. The sentence was handed down. He would be executed by hanging. Swift Runner is only one tale of cannibalism out of many. Though it's existed for centuries, cannibalism is still considered a taboo practice. However, it wasn't until the 20th century that it was discovered that eating human flesh could have serious medical consequences. Most of the world didn't know anyone lived in the highlands of Papua New Guinea until the 1930s, when Australian gold prospectors surveying the area realized that there were about a million people there. When researchers made their way to these villages in the 1950s, they found something disturbing. Among a tribe of about 11,000 people, called the Four, Up to 200 people a year had been dying of an inexplicable illness. They called the disease kuru, which means shivering or trembling. Once the symptoms set in, it was a swift demise. First, they'd have trouble walking, a sign that they were about to lose control over their limbs. They'd also lose control over their emotions, which is why people called it the laughing death. Within a year, they couldn't get up off the floor, feed themselves, or control their bodily functions. Many locals were convinced it was the result of sorcery. The disease primarily affected adult women and children younger than eight years old. In some villages, there were almost no young women left. But what was causing it? That answer eluded researchers for years. After ruling out an exhaustive list of contaminants, they thought it must be genetic. So in 1961, a medical anthropologist named Shirley Lindenbaum traveled from village to village mapping family trees so researchers could settle the issue but it was soon found that the disease couldn't be genetic because it affected women and children in the same social groups, but not in the same genetic groups. She also knew that it had to have started in villages in the north around the turn of the century, and then moved south over the decades. Lyndon's Mom had a hunch about what was going on, and she turned out to be right. It had to do with funerals. Specifically, it had to do with eating dead bodies at funerals. In many villages, when a person died, they would be cooked and consumed. It was an act of love and grief. As one medical researcher described, If the body was buried, it was eaten by worms. If it was placed on a platform, it was eaten by maggots. The four believed it was much better that the body was eaten by people who loved the deceased than by worms and insects. Women removed the brain, mixed it with ferns, and cooked it in tubes of bamboo. They fire-roasted and ate everything except the gallbladder. It was primarily adult women who did so, says Lindenbaum, because their bodies were thought to be capable of housing and taming the dangerous spirit that would accompany a dead body. But women would occasionally pass pieces of the feast to children as snacks. They ate what their mothers gave them until the boys had a certain age and went off to live with the men. Finally, after urging from researchers like Lindenbaum, biologists came around to the idea that the strange disease stemmed from eating dead people. The case was closed after a group at the U.S. National Institutes of Health injected infected human brains into chimpanzees and watched symptoms of Kuru develop in the animals months later. The group, which won a Nobel Prize for the findings, dubbed it a slow virus. But it wasn't a virus, or a bacterium, fungus, or parasite. It was an entirely new infectious agent, one that had no genetic material, could survive being boiled, and wasn't even alive. Another group would find years later that it was a twisted protein, capable of compelling normal proteins on the surface of nerve cells in the brain to contort just like them. The so-called prions, or protonaceous infectious particles, would eventually misfold enough proteins to kill pockets of nerve cells in the brain, leaving the cerebellum riddled with holes like a sponge. The process was so odd that some compared it to Dr. Jekyll's transformation to Mr. Hyde, the same entity but in two manifestations a kind, innocuous one, and a vicious, lethal one. The epidemic likely started when one person in a four-village developed sporadic creutzfeldt jakob disease, a degenerative neurological disorder similar to Kuru. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about one in a million people in the U.S. develop CJD. The difference is that others rarely come into contact with infected human tissue. Kuru and CJD both belong to a class of infectious diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, or TSEs, also known as prion diseases. Other prion diseases include bovine spongiform encephalopathy in cattle, known as mad cow disease, scrappy in sheep and coats, and chronic wasting disease in deer and elk. Currently, there are no cures or treatments for any of the other TSE diseases. Similar to other TSEs, Kuru has a long incubation period. It was years or even decades before an infected person showed symptoms. Because Kuru mainly affected the cerebellum, which is responsible for coordination, the first symptoms were usually an unsteady gait, tremors, and slurred speech. Unlike most of the other TSEs, dementia was either minimal or absent. Mood changes were often present. Eventually, individuals became unable to stand or eat, and they died in a comatose state from 6 to 12 months after the first appearance of symptoms. Though the four stopped the practice of cannibal funeral feasts more than 50 years ago, cases of Kuru continued to surface over the years because the prions could take decades to show their effects. Unfortunately, Swift Runner's family never got any funeral of their own. In traditional Cree spirituality, one who finds honor in the circle of birth, infancy, childhood, youth, maturity, and old age can also find honor in death. Although the body undergoes physical transformations, the spirit remains unchanged. When the body is no longer viable, the spirit ascends into another realm. Separation from the body doesn't necessarily mean that all ties to people are disconnected two ceremonies, the wake and round dance, illustrate the Cree philosophy of death and its relationship between the Cree and spirits. The ceremony for delivering the body back to Mother Earth as well as the ceremony to commune with spirits who have shed the body constitute part of the bereavement and healing process. The wake may last up to four days and three nights. Friends and relatives continuously take turns staying with the body. As people come and go, they relate stories of earlier days and share memories of the deceased. Laughter is acceptable because it's considered a healing medicine. It releases tension and helps realize that there's still joy for those left behind. They cry and comfort one another in their grief. Often, songs and prayers are offered. Although it's a time of sorrow, it's also a time of joy and reverence, for the spirit is now free to join their ancestors. The Cree are respectful to acknowledge that time will heal the wounds of immediate loss, but that the memory of the person will not depart. Traditionally, it was women who washed and dressed the body in preparation for its burial. Women also made the moccasins, which are placed on the feet. Sweet grass, a sacred and purifying plant, is placed on the right hand of the deceased. Tobacco, the instrument to aid communication to the creator, is also placed in the casket. Personal property, especially the deceased person's pipe, is left with the body as these articles are, in essence, part of the person. Women prepare the meals during the days of bereavement. The food for the feast following the burial is also prepared by women, although some women at times will be excluded from handling or touching the food. If it's inadvertently tasted or touched, that food is set aside and not eaten. This is because the intention of the feast is to eat with the spirits. At the graveside, prayers are offered and songs are often sung. Before the casket is lowered into the earth, it's covered with a blanket as a gesture of farewell and respect. If the deceased was married, it's often the marriage blanket which is used. The casket is then lowered into the earth. The male relatives and friends fill the grave with earth before all the mourners congregate at the feast to pray for the spirit's journey and well-being. Cree people continue to honor the deceased's spirit. In order to help the spirit undo its ties, the Cree are advised not to cry during the night after the fourth sun has set. In addition, the deceased's property is distributed. Although it's painful to part with those things, as they often provide constant and fond memories of the deceased, it's recognized that, should they keep them, the spirit may not have the freedom to completely depart. Thus, it's for the spirit's well-being that the giveaway occurs. After years pass, the deceased family gives a feast to honor the passage of the spirit from the body. Neither the spirits nor the people ever fully depart from one another. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.